Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. You know, my wife's father has a round to it. <laughs> he, what? He has a round to it. <laughs> they gave him this round piece of wood, and it says on it, this is a to it. He'll get... Now you've got it. around to it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. That's pretty good. That's, that's a dad joke. That's, that is a dad gift for that's sure. That's a dad gift. Other dads came up with that gift. That's clearly <laughs> a dad thing. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. it is. What would you like to talk about tonight? How's your health? You know, my health is good. My spirits are good. Can I tell you why? I would love to hear that. I got a homemade card from my son from daycare. You did not. And it's very sweet. And it's clearly one of those cards where the his teachers kind of ask him what he wants to say, and then they write the message on the front because, you know, he can't really write the messages. He just draws me a lovely picture on the inside. Mm-hmm. And so the message that he felt he wanted to convey to me on this card is, mm-hmm. Daddy, I love you. I want a toy. <laughs> ah, nice. Uh, we, you know, we, I got one of those actually for Mother's Day. My son made one for, for, uh, you know, for his, his mother, my wife. And, uh, it, it, I think he misinterpreted some of the, the instructions because it went from, um, you know, all the things I, I love about you, mom. Uh, plus I hate it when you yell real loud at me. <laughs> and I read that before he'd given it to to my wife, and I said, "What? Why would you? Why would you write that?" And he said, "Well, I think my teacher was asking us to write seven good things and one really bad thing on our Mother's Day card." <laughs> and so I couldn't think of a bad thing, so I decided to just say that she yells at me real loud sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, she doesn't. I mean, she's not much of a yeller at all. She doesn't even yell at me. And if anybody's a target for yelling, it's me. That's so uh, funny. Yeah. Right, we were. At the, can I tell you one more? Oh, I, got, yeah. I got one more story. Because so this this one is the one I really wanted to tell you. And then you sucked me into the card thing. <laughs> we we uh, you know my son again. We we went to a dental cleaning and they said you know you got a kid who's got really big teeth coming in. And I'm worried, the dentist says, I'm worried about crowding. And you know mm. what they do with crowding? They take out teeth. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've had that done myself. He said, I need you to go see. I'm going to give you a referral to an orthodontist just to get a consult. And so we did that today. I took him to see the day. Fun. And so the nice person comes in, the, the, this woman who says, uh, you know, do, does he have any you know, other illnesses? Does he have any this or that? And then she says, <laughs> we're all the three of us, me, my son, and, and her, we're sitting in the, this office. And, I, and she said, does he have any habits, you know, like th- sucking his thumb or, you know, doing anything around his mouth? And I said, no. 
He doesn't have any, he doesn't have any habits. I, can you think of any habits? And Nicholas says, no, I don't, I don't think so. She says, okay. She goes over the computer. She starts typing notes. And he says, wait, wait, wait. Oh, I do have one. I totally have a habit. And I'm thinking, what is your habit? She says, sure. <laughs> what is it? What is it, bud? And he says, oh, I put my hand down my pants. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's... She is. She busts a gut at that. Busts a gut and finally says, "No, no, no!" Like mouth habit. Nick says, "Oh, I get it now." <laughs> oh, those those young confessions, right? <laughs> Just shush, shush it. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. That's fantastic. Yeah, right. All right. Fantastic. Shall we tell the people where we're from? Yes, where are we from? Hey, welcome to the next reel, everybody. I'm Beat Right. That there is Andy Nelson. Yo. Uh, and uh, we are the next reel. We spoil movies heartily, old movies, great movies. And we spoil them for you. You can check out all the details about the show at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the once and future king, Steve Sarmento. You can uh, check out the next reel, the monthly next reel shows. Just add one. Just add one. Not a bad one. Yeah, that's right. That was a good one. Yeah, little Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uh, action just this last week. So that's uh, that's our most recent show. You can check out what we thought of uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Good show. Uh, and uh, you can also uh, see all of our past shows. Uh, and, uh, you know, listen to them. Lots of hours of movie spoilage. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, Andy, mm-hmm. I feel like we're, we're, we have a little catch-up to do here. With oh. the last week of Instagram, hashtag guess the movie, hashtag pony prize, Andy versus the people. That's right. How'd That's you do? Right. How'd you do? Now that you feel like you're back into it? it you know, getting... Slowly reacquainted with the <laughs> with it, uh, while uh, good old Stephen takes a, a little break, I uh, jump back in. He's on holiday. He's on holiday. He's That's what they do ho- over he's there. On holiday. That's right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. So I, you know, I threw in a little uh, one of uh, Walt Disney's early films, The Three Caballeros. It was their the seventh film out of the Disney Animation Studios, and. Uh, it was uh, it was one that I thought would be fun to throw in because it does have some live action stuff, and so that's that's always fun stuff to really throw people when it's a mostly animated. Film. Totally. So so how'd you do? So I did pretty good. I did pretty good. I I, I lasted about uh, half the week, and then you know once you throw in an animated train, Boom. people kind of, <laughs> people kind yeah. of click. And uh, uh, the very alliterative John G. Joseph actually ended up uh, taking it. This week, so uh, John G. Joseph is entered to win our pony prize. Excellent. Now, is John G. Joseph this is a first-time win for John G. Joseph? I believe so. Excellent. I believe so. Yeah. Welcome to the stack. That's right, John G. Joseph. I love it. Good place to be. Good place to be. Mm-hmm. That's good, man. I'm yeah, prou- I'm proud of you getting back in there. It's like you remembered how to use the technology yourself. You remembered all the passwords. I know it was a little <laughs> tricky. It was a little tricky. I. Uh, <laughs> trying to sort out uh what i'm going to do this coming week and you know i have an idea but uh 
Yeah, looking for images, I realized, wow, this is a movie of lots of faces. Uh, I'm going to have a hard time with this uh, one. So we'll see. We'll see what I can pull out of it. Excellent. Yes. Excellent, excellent. All right. Um, I think that we should go from there and jump straight into trailers. Ooh. Okay, do we do uh, crime funny first or um, moody family uh, uh, dramedy? I think we do, mm, let's do moody family dramedy. All right. We're doing mine then. Skeleton Twins. Skeleton Twins, directed by Craig Johnson, written by Mark Heyman and, and Craig Johnson, starring Kristen Wiig, Bill Hader. Oh, my goodness. I'm mm-hmm. so excited for this movie. Do you know what this is? Okay, so let me just tell you. This yeah. is, uh, uh, these are, uh, Bill and uh, Kristen play uh, estranged twins, Maggie and Milo. Uh, they uh, coincidentally cheat death on the same day, prompting them to reunite and confront how their lives went so wrong. Uh, this, I think, is the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind for both of them. I, you know, I, I hope so, because I love both of them, and the trailer for this looks fantastic. Um, I'd heard about this uh, when it uh, played up at Sundance, but I hadn't really, I didn't dig too deep into what it was about or anything. I just kind of saw a few little things, and um, um, even when the trailer first came out, I, I just, I hadn't watched it until you uh, sent it over, and wow, I am so excited to see this now. It I just know. looks fantastic. I think it highlights uh, for both of the, and this is one of those things, in this generation of SNL graduates, right, SNL alum, mm-hmm. uh, these two in particular always had some of the most interesting range, uh, the broadest range, and I think this film really highlights a new side of them, um, and, and seeing them together is just always such a treat, Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig. They just look great. They, I, It's really engaging uh, trailer, so I'm very, very excited about this. comes out September 19th, and you can watch the trailer for your, for your very ownsome. Uh, if you head over to thenextroll.com, just check out the show notes for this very show. Excellent. We'll see it. What's yours? Excellent. You know, mine is uh, a fun little uh, movie that... Um Elmore Leonard, it's based on on one of his novels called The Switch. It's called Life of Crime. And this, like you said, it is a crime comedy. It just looks, uh, it looks just hilarious. Um, Basically, Tim Robbins is just a rich man. Jennifer Aniston is his rich wife. They clearly don't have a a strong relationship. Um, And he's having an affair with Isla Fisher. And um, he is getting ready to leave his wife, but she ends up getting kidnapped by a trio of, uh, I, I don't know if I'd call them bumbling thieves, but they definitely are the funny sort. We've got uh, one of my favorites, John Hawks, and then, of course, we've got uh, Mark Boone Jr., who always has a great look, and most deaf, who is um, strangely credited as Yasin Bey. I'm not quite sure why, but he is. And yeah, I think that I think that's his official name, or or his his uh, is he is he have it's his new Muslim I believe name. His, his, his official name is Dante Terrell yeah, Smith. Yeah, so this is so. his Muslim name. He's done a okay. Yusuf like he's done a Cat Stevens thing. Okay, so we'll call him Cat Stevens. So, <laughs> so, so he's made the switch. I totally too. missed so, the point. <laughs> no, no. 
<laughs> so, so they are the bumbling thieves who who end up kidnapping his wife. And of course, now that his wife is kidnapped, he doesn't want to pay the ransom because, of course, he wants his wife to be gone. And it just ends up being just a, you know, a, a, a comedy of all these people trying to, you know, find a way to get what it is they want. And, you know, this just looks like that Get Shorty type of, of crime comedy that uh, I love so much. And I'm hoping it is. I'm hoping it turns into that and it doesn't turn into, uh, what was the Get Shorty sequel? Um, uh, oh, Be, right. cool Be Cool or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. I'm hoping it's not that. I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping it's good. So uh, we shall see. But uh, it's got a fantastic cast. If I, aside from the people I mentioned, it's got uh, also has Will Forte in it. And um, I, I don't know. He, you know, he's great. We talked about him when we uh, when we both saw Nebraska and how he's bringing a lot to the table now. And I mean, all of these people, I think, bring a lot to a film. I think Jennifer Aniston in the last couple of years has found a great comedy streak that she's clearly uh, tapped into. And I really enjoy that. So uh, and Tim Robbins, I mean, I, I haven't seen him. In uh, gosh, I haven't seen him in much lately, and um, he does—he's not a person who does a lot of comedy. And uh, when he does, I don't think it's worked out that well for him. Right. But I am hoping that this time it does work. So uh, yeah, so that's that is life of crime. Outstanding. This one opens in uh, gosh, I closed my tab, but I believe it opens in August. Mm. August twenty ninth and August. Yep. Excellent. All right. Two good films. Yes. Exciting. Now, Andy, let's go to Brazil. The rules of the game are laid down. We all have to play by them. Look at you, Sam. Whatever happened to you? An empty desk is an efficient desk. Let a friend tell you. Your life is going wrong. Now, shape up. Do cooperate. Think of your mother. Has anybody seen Sam Lowry? Sam, it's time for you to grow up and accept responsibility. You'll never get anywhere in a suit like that. Yes, yes, yes. Sam, what are we going to do with you? You must have hopes, wishes, dreams. No, nothing. Not even dreams. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what I want. You won't believe this. I'm, I know it's going to sound incredible, but um, but I've been dreaming about you. I mean, I love you. In my dreams, I love you. Yes, Jack. But until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Andy, you set the bar so high last week when we closed last week's show. That was dangerous of me, wasn't mm-hmm. it? You did. Yep. You closed it really high. <laughs> we are talking about the 1984 or 85 British film Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam, written by Terry Gilliam, Tom Stoppard, and Lime, Charles <laughs> McCown, McCune, 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 
Charles McCune. Um, I, you said, you said, your words, sir, this is Brazil. You said, this is my very favorite film of all time. All right. I did say that. I recall. I feel like the gauntlet has been thrown. I feel like it must have been. Why yes. don't you? Uh, why don't you open us up? What do you? Th- why? Why is Brazil your very favorite film? You know, this goes back to college, I suppose, in film school, and this was a film that I just hadn't even heard of when I uh, first got to college, and I was working at a pizza joint, and one of the guys that I worked with was really into. Uh, interesting films and we always ended up talking about these films but he was one of those people who was really passionate and would tell me these like the film and all these different it's just like the interesting things about it and he would go into these details and it sounded like a really interesting film when he pitched me brazil but he pitched me brazil in a way where he really kind of got into the whole idea of the battle of brazil which is i'm sure going to be part of our conversation of the film and how when Terry Gilliam made this and tried to release it uh, in the United States, Universal wanted uh, him to change it and didn't like the version that he was releasing. And uh, the international version, of course, was the longer version, but Universal ended up making him cut it down, and there was a cut-down version. And then, inevitably, there was the uh, you know now-famous Love Conquers All version that Universal ended up releasing on TV. So he went into detail about all these differences between the versions, and, and so it really piqued my curiosity. It was something that, you know, I... In my naive, uh, you know, high school days, I hadn't really uh, learned that much about movies where I had heard any stories of things like that, and so this really kind of, you know, surprised me. And so I went and uh, I went to the uh, library where they had it on laserdisc, and I sat there and I watched it there, and uh, I just kind of started falling in love with this wacky, uh, overbearing frightening world that terry gilliam had created and it's a it's a movie that has always stuck with me uh, both for the uh I, I think i would have to call it just this this uh this um i i used overbearing already but just like this this strong presence that terry gilliam has in his films and just this this busyness that is everywhere in his films that always has a tendency to feel uh like kind of broken down and grimy a little bit um that's something i I really do enjoy in his movies um but there and it's just so dense there's just so much from beginning to end in the film that i find myself still being able to watch it um and always getting new things out of it always hearing uh lines that i've missed before or hearing it in a new way or getting different references and and just catching jokes that are, are really buried in there and this film of this this man uh, battling this uh, this system, or kind of he's he's part of the system really, and it's only because he falls for this woman that he kind of ends up having to kind of break out of the system. And just the way that he plays this whole system on itself, and uh, the the corruption of the people within it, um, I think is frightening and hilarious. And I just I enjoy just all of the little things all through this film i i'll also enjoy all things through this film i 
I think the I'm uncomfortable saying it's my very favorite film because that's a that's a that's tough. But it's I, I agree with you. This is uh, this is a film that I get something new out of every time I watch it, and this time is certainly no no different. And and this time I actually ended up watching uh, both versions. Um, and uh, when the, you say well, when you yeah, say, I say both versions, right. you watched the, which ones? The uh, uh, let's say the U.S. original U.S. release. Okay, right. so that's the 132-minute uh, version. 100 and, yeah, right. And the director's cut, right? The fifth right. release. Not the Love Conquers All version. Right. All right. And I watched the Love Conquers All version and the director's cut. Okay. Um, fa- actually, fascinating. I've never seen Love Conquers I can't wait for you to tell me about the Love Conquers All version. I, it's hard for me to believe there's a movie there. <laughs> uh, as as much of the cut, so okay, so we'll talk about that. One of the things you you know that that I think you you touched on there is just the you know the the level of kind of uh, detail of the wit that that comes through uh, this this particular film, um, and I I I can't help but but think about the ease with which the wit is delivered. Not just the wit, but the depth uh, of the wit is delivered. For example, uh, you know, the sequence where, um, you know, the, the first uh, arrest, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're repairing the hole in the floor that they put in Jill's apartment to, to you know, slide down their, their emergency right. pole, right? The super efficient way right. to get into the house. Super right. efficient. And, and the, the repairmen uh, for the ministry say, you know, say, we, we don't make mistakes. Uh-huh. Right as they drop the, the perfectly plug. prepackaged plug uh, <laughs> into the hole that was just slightly too small and it falls straight through the bottom. And they say, typical, they've gone back to metric without telling us. <laughs> right? So... That is, uh, that ends up being an unbelievably deep bit of wit, right? It's funny if you just let it wash over you, but it's even funnier as you watch the movie and think at some point somebody made the decision to change to the imperial measurement system in Britain because it, it's really hard to say that this takes place. I know he's said that this is, but really, it's this is a British film, and he's it, it in Britain they change, and now they're changing back. At some point, they decided it would be more important to change back, and the way you see the rest of the film. Film, the bureaucracy of the west rest of the film which is which abhors change right the entire film is built on this precedent of abhorring change and and that somebody thought it was so important to change measurement systems for this ministry i found rip-roaring hysterical i found myself laughing about that all day long uh, as i was convalescing over this film yeah, and it's and it's constant all through it, yes. and and just the lines and the, and even just in the conversations that people have with each other about their own lives, uh, it's it, it it plays off on a way that people just live this kind of uh, you know packaged life that this society has almost created for them without really completely paying attention to each other. I always love the bit where um, as Sam, he met his uh, friend, his old friend Jack, in the lobby as they're going separate ways, and he says, "Oh, give my give my regards to Alice and the twins." Oh, triplets! I <laughs> know. Really, boy, time. time sure flies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's things like that. Is it just it's these strange little moments that it's it. I don't even know. It's just this this 
kind of a throwaway line that is in there. But in that line, there's so much, uh, I mean, aside from the brilliant comedy in it, but there's this, this uh, subtext of how people actually relate to each other within this society. And uh, it, it comes from this kind of prepackaged society that central services and all these departments, uh, the Ministry of Information has basically kind of uh, infused into society in this world of ducts that they all have and convincing everyone that they need all these ducts to, uh, to basically pipe everything in and out and, and probably to be watching everybody at all times. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's, you know, the film opens on this, uh, on this uh, advertisement for ducts, and it's from Central Services, and I love the logo of Central Services is the ducts kind of move out. There are five ducks, and, and two ducks move off to the left and the right, and the, the, the middle duct goes straight up, and it looks, like, it looks like five fingers, and you're being flipped off as, the, <laughs> as the, the jingle is, you know, we do the work, you do the pleasure, right. <laughs> uh, which is just perfect. And what they're, what they're advertising there is that, you know, if you have bland ducts, uh, we have now decorative ducts that we can replace your bland ducks, and now you'll have decorative, beautiful ducks. But one of the things you notice in the in the film is that nowhere there are du- where there are ducks on display are any of them decorated. Well, uh, except for one place, which is in the restaurant, you'll notice that the ducts oh, behind true. them are all covered in uh, di- like disco ball, uh, yes. those, the little disco ball glass. Mirrors, right. Yeah, right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. But no, none of the consumer ducts right. have been right. decorated at all. And and when you see the, the insanity of duct work as, as you know, our, our protagonist's apartment is, is slowly um, disemboweled, uh, you get a sense for, and, and you said it, the reach of central services, which as a function of this state agency, right, that we, which we, I, I guess we have to believe is an arm of the Ministry of, of you know, information yeah. retrieval, um, is, uh, you know, is, is such a symbol for this completely bananas overreaching society uh, that has just taken over. Yeah, it's the society where they've really tried creating this system to help make everything easier for everybody. But in reality, what it's done is it's created just this mess for everybody. It's created this bureaucracy that is not helping in any way. But what it's done is it's created this facade that people live in where they just do their own little thing and they just kind of disregard things that that fall outside of what it is they're trying to do whether it's the ducts and just ignoring the fact they're there or a random explosion going off in the restaurant you know you just kind of oh you just you know well we didn't get hurt well fine hey we're still eating our food let's just finish our dinner you right. know it, it's 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 a it's this strange society that these these people have created and that they are willingly living in and frighteningly uh, accepting of the part in which they play in this system. Yes. Yeah, it, you know it's it's funny uh, and I think that is that ends up being the statement. You know, we talk, re- refresh me. You said you you phrased this so well last week when you were talking about the the trilogy of the imagination and and the role that each of these three movies play uh related to the age of the protagonist. Oh, yeah. I let's see. Well, there was Time Bandits and it's Time Bandits Brazil and The Adventures of Baron Munchausen and Time Bandits is the uh the child as a young dreamer brazil as the the middle-aged dreamer and uh and baron munchausen at the dreamer at the end of his life right so here we are in the in this middle film and um we we are sort of experiencing um 
I, I want to say it's kind of the drought of these, the kind of early middle age, yeah. uh, the, the drought of, uh, of imagination, the drought of clarity and, uh, you know, the drought of, of balance and, and our protagonist, Sam Lowry has, has fallen out of balance with his life. Although it's interesting, we get this hint in his first meeting, uh, with his boss, Mm-hmm. He's called in because the electrics have gone out. He's late for work, and he's called in uh, because clearly he has taken on a role in his department um, it, where he sort of he's the fixer for his rather incompetent uh, boss. Mm-hmm. And he's having this conversation, and, and his boss is saying, "Well, you know, would you ever, would you ever leave me? You know, even if you got promoted, would you leave?" He says, "No, no, 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 I would not." And so you get this this sense from his his reaction about how firm he is, or how adamant he is that he would not leave, that he is has taken an active role in his career and chosen not to go anywhere we also get a hint of this when he's having his conversation with jack played by michael palin uh, in their in their little you, you've already mentioned their interchange in the lobby he's saying you know what happened to you sam you were a star and he says no, no, no you know he kind of brushes it off that he is taking an active role in his career and that is one of the the that, that's sort of the first time that we get a hint that he's capable of taking an active role and it's in direct contrast to just about everybody else that we see on display in this film yeah his his active role is taking this dead-end job in a place where you know there's no chance for promotion or anything and no chance of getting noticed and that's as he says beautiful that's exactly what he wants yeah he doesn't want to get noticed he just wants to skate by and not have to do anything and i you know it's really interesting i think later when he is trying to help his his uh his horribly ineffective boss uh ian home is so fantastic in the role and um you know it's interesting how Ian Holm is essentially one of those people who's so successful in his role as the boss because he basically gets other people like Sam to do all of the things that he doesn't want to have to do in case it could get him into trouble. So, like, he has Sam sign his name, and, you know, he has Sam do all of this whole processing of this check. So I think I think he's an inept boss, but I also think he's he's smartly inept. And I think that's how he yeah. keeps his, his role. Calculating, but calculating. Very, very calculating, yeah. exactly. But when Sam willingly says, hey, I'll take this check to uh, Mrs. Buttle and I'll go uh, deliver it to her, the refund check for her husband, because he's trying to do something good. He thinks that this is going to help absolve uh, him and, and their office of all of their potential wrongs that they might have done with this whole Buttle-Tuttle discrepancy. And that scene when he confronts uh, Mrs. Buttle and she is just broken down and you see just those tears welling in her eyes as she asks him, what did you do with his body? And, you know, he is he his mindset is such that as he she because she doesn't say anything for most of the scene. And he's trying to give her this check and he is saying, you know, I didn't have to come here. You know, it's it's like. Oh man, this is the type of person you are where you're absolving yourself of any wrongdoing by making it out like you're the good guy here. And it's just such a painful scene because he's so clearly not. And he's at this point in the film, he still is so representative of this, just this evil uh, machine where none of these people in it 
pay any attention to what the system is actually doing because they're only going to focus on their part. And if something goes wrong, hey, that's not my division. I'm just here to do this, this check. That's, that's all I do. I have no idea what happened to your husband. That whole thing. And this is like that first moment where Sam is really confronted with some of these wrongs that, the, that can happen here. And I think it's a really powerful moment in the film. And it's, it's really heartbreaking the way that uh, Mrs. Buttle is played. I, I totally agree. Uh, it, it's funny, you know, you talk about the, the sort of how everybody has given up. You know, you get these the, the little sequences that cement that, you know, when, when Jill, who's trying to help Mrs. Buttle uh, determine, you know, what is going on, and, the, and she has to confront the bureaucracy. You know, she can't right. get, get anything done unless the thing is, unless her receipt is stamped. Uh, right. You know, and, and then back to the restaurant, you know, when, when we have the, the um, uh, kerfuffle with the waiter. The waiter right. is, is fantastic. Fantastic. He will not take the order unless he says, unless Sam says the number of right. the order. Right? He won't, will not take it unless you have to say the number. Talk about somebody who has adapted to a system where they they only follow their own specific rules of their role. Right. Yeah. Frightening. 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 So, so the the gist of the film, uh, we have Sam who is a dreamer. Yeah. Uh, what is the talk a little bit about your your interpretation of the his of him being a dreamer in the context of of this film? This is this is how it starts. You know, we we meet him. He's got his wings. He's flying, and this is before the sort of brunt of the action kicks in. Yeah, I mean, I think he is really the sort of dreamer that, you know, puts himself into the superhero role, basically. You know, he sees himself as this as this hero who can fly, who can, um, uh, you know, save the, the, the I, you know, I, initially there's not even a damsel in distress. But, you know, he just, he's got the dream girl floating up there with him and he's going to go get her. He's very much that sort of guy. And then as his dreams develop as you know it's kind of reflective of his life as things kind of go wrong in his life his dreams get darker and uh the girl gets taken by these forces of darkness and this this uh you know frightening samurai being appears and he has to fight him and all of this it's it's very uh always very much kind of like he's this superhero he's the one who's going to save the day he is um uh, somebody of interest he is is uh somebody that is important and in no case in the film does he really ever show himself to be that and even when he tries to kind of use his dreams when he starts pursuing jill and and you know takes over her truck and bashes through the roadblock and the you know there's the whole pursuit and he dumps the house and all that at no time is he really an effective hero i mean he's very ineffective and he's just you know He's trying to live that life, but clearly that's just not a life that, uh, at least in, in the context of this reality that these people live, you're just not going to really be able to kind of uh, fight this system. I think the person who successfully fights the system is Harry Tuttle, uh, Robert De Niro's character, who who really is just this guy who goes in and out and, and fixes people's uh, ducts. That's the real hero who is trying to cut through the bureaucracy. And Sam is is trying to be a hero like he is in his dreams, but I don't think he um, 
sees past the system that he's still in, you know? I do. You know, it's it's this it takes me to this sort of midi-esque place, right? I mean, we have this guy who's, you know, whose life his mother is otherwise sort of kind of has him henpecked. He has no other significant relationships. Uh trying to set set him up with the you know, her friend's daughter uh with the headgear. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, he he otherwise has very very little but his dreams. But one of the things that I like so much about these dreams is that they set us up for the expectation that Sam is capable of acting in a way that is uh, bold, right? Yes. We know he is capable of doing it because he fashions himself this way, right? Sam's ego, his superego, what we see in his dreams is capability. What we see in reality is him beginning to act on that capability by trying to capture the woman of his dreams when he actually sees her um and and so i like that i like the fact that we get to see him um we get to see him evolve kind of before us um and and i i see that as a great parallel to you know particularly to uh, ben stiller's version of walter mitty yeah. Certainly not the the original Thurber story, which didn't have any kind of evolution to it. But um, you know what we see is a is a guy who who knows how and begins to take action. What we see in the end when we when he figures out how to actually fix Jill's problems and goes to the ministry and erases her. Um, you know, it's it's a great example of him uh, of him discovering himself. Yeah. It, it it absolutely is, and I you know I would add that that Jill his relationship with Jill I think is is the search for Jill right uh, is, mm-hmm. is is I think significant uh, to me at least it's significant of this idea of of kind of yin and yang right the representation of of um, of Sam Lowry seeking balance because you look at Jill she is everything she is the real life manifestation of everything that he is not. Right? Exactly. She is right. brave and bold and courageous and and you know she's she takes action and she's an ideologue and she she knows what she stands for. Not afraid to go up against the system. Exactly. And so the parallelism that we see in this in in the film, right, is is really between him being that character in his dreams trying to figure out how to do that in real life and her being that in real life and uh, toward the end learning how to be the damsel. Yeah. Yeah, and they play that really nicely throughout the film with mirrors and reflections and stuff. Like when he, uh, and just the way that he sees her. I mean, he first sees her, I mean, it's outside of the dream. In the real world, he first sees her up on the screens when, you know, the camera is capturing her face. And she's, you know, he sees those screens in the lobby and he sees that she's somewhere, but he can't find her anywhere. And then later, when he finally first sees her, it's on a broken piece of, of mirror that's laying on the floor of Mrs. Buttle's house. And he sees her on the reflection of the mirror on the floor from the hole that's up in the ceiling. And then there's also that great uh, fight that they have when they're in the lingerie store. And there's it's that mirrored wall. And he's trying to grab her, uh, you know, on, on one side of the wall. And she's, you know, she, he's holding her around the corner while he's talking to Mrs. Terrain. And you get all those great reflections of him. And it plays this really interesting idea of that notion that um, that she is kind of that, uh, that like you said, that yin-yang, that mirror reflection of him, where she kind of represents some of these things that uh, that he doesn't have in his life. And maybe that's why he's pursuing her. And it's, it's a very interesting uh, way to play her. And I think it's interesting the way that 
he kind of transforms her in a way. And it's, it's a very interesting vertigo moment when uh, he takes her back to his mother's place and uh, kind of has that vertigo transformation of her into kind of the long-haired blonde from his dreams. And at that point, she does lose a lot of her effectiveness that she had uh, earlier in the film. You know, now she's kind of, she has kind of become that damsel in distress and she's less interested in in escaping and fighting the system and she's just going to hide and play dead basically and he's the one now who kind of takes up the mantle and goes off to uh, go erase her okay here's where i want to split uh the films right because that that last sequence is one where that that differs from the uh, original american release and the director's cut right okay um is we have her put the wig on at the end. This is in the American release, and they're they're having that damsel moment, right? Uh, and they have love, and there's this great sort of iris close of the, uh, you know, of the the uh, the satin kind of curtains around the four poster, right? And then, right. and and so she still has the wig on at that point, right? Right. Uh, in the American release, the next morning. Uh, they wake up and they're, you know, playing around again, but they, and then the, the things come in, uh, and, and there, but is in the director's cut, she, she starts off taking the, uh, being wrapped in a bow. She's naked and she has a bow around her chest. When she, when they wake up, when they wake up the next morning, right. She's got the bow around her chest and he kind of unwraps her and they, they, uh, uh, I can't remember if she climbs under the covers again, yeah, but she that's, under that's the covers. when all the people, that's when all the, you know, the soldiers burst in again. Right. But we see her. her out of wig, right? This is a chance yes. where we see her right. not in uh, the the wig. And Correct. it's still, that is, I think, a significant sort of change, right? Where we get, we actually get to see her as her, as Jill. Right. Um, releasing herself right that this sort of vulnerability that comes with this representation of nudity and 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 kind of sexual congress between these two people as he he becomes kind of it takes on more of that the sort of dominant um uh, role in the relationship and she is giving herself to him right literally uh, wrapped as an as a gift literally like an, ex- an executive present you know exactly exactly yeah. uh, and i think that's a, a really interesting twist what did they do with that bit in the in the the shortened version the abbreviated brazil well that's about the point where um things differ quite a bit because it 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 becomes a moment where he kind of the way that the, that version is really designed to make Sam look like a hero uh, from the beginning, really, and try to make the uh, the government really uh, the bad the bad government, and it's it's where there's you know redemption is possible, and all these, uh, I mean, what it does at this point, it, it builds to um, Sam fighting his way out of the system and winning basically is what happens so you get that moment where um you know he gets caught but then uh tuttle breaks him out and he goes on this this fight to get out of the system they blow up the ministry of information and then he and jill ride off into the sunset and they go and live in a little house in in the middle of uh you know a beautiful countryside and so you have a lot of those elements still, but it, what it does is it removes the element of the gunshots, which is the key moment in that when they they break in and catch uh, Sam. And those gunshots do not happen in the American release. 
Oh, interesting. Those are only so, in so, the director's cut. Yeah, and, so they they basically remove the fact that you're finding out that Jill gets killed right there. Right, right. Yeah. And and that I thought was interesting. That is a that's a, a difference across all three films that she she does not die in the in the American release you get the sense that she was already dead systematically. They weren't looking for her and so they left her alone. They probably right. charged her for the uh for the retrieval. Right, which you right. find out in the in the director's cut when he's visited by Heltman when he's in kind of the the lockup, and he says, "No, no, no she's not dead. I killed her, or whatever he says." And Heltman says, "Yeah, it was interesting because she's actually shown as being uh, dead twice." Yeah, right. And so that you find out, okay. And then in in the in the Love Conquers All version, it, there's no hint that she's killed. In fact, there's no hint at that at any point. Does all of a sudden he enter kind of a state in his mind where he is no longer uh, uh, paying attention to the real world, that it's all uh, kind of in his head now? Right. Which is clearly how the the director's cut ends. All of the stuff with Tuttle rescuing him and everything is treated as reality— and they really kind of escape, blow up the ministry, and he and Jill ride off. And, and the weirdest thing is that Tuttle still gets uh, consumed by paperwork, which, it, considering it's all of a sudden a real world rather than kind of his, his mental state, it makes no sense to have that as something that's really happening. So, what's, so well, it's ridiculous is what it is. It's really uh, silly. What is your sense? Let's talk a little bit about the um, uh, about the um, Battle of Brazil uh, that led to these systematic differences in the film. Well, it's one of those, you know, it, studios go through these changing of the guard uh, periodically. And and in the middle of the production of Brazil, um, it was it was funded by Universal uh, bought the domestic rights and uh, I believe 20th Century Fox bought the uh, rest of the world rights. And um, in the middle of production, Universal changed uh, changed um, hands and, and Sid Sheinberg ended up as the head of Universal. And when it came time, uh, every time that happens, they look at all the films that are in production, that are you know in development, and kind of reevaluate how things are going and if things should change and stuff like that. And he could not figure out Brazil. He thought there was an interesting story there, but he thought it was uh, ending uh, in, in really kind of a, a, a very much of a depressing way that people weren't going to get on board with. Now, I believe in the contract, Terry Gilliam had to deliver a film under, I think it was like two hours and five minutes yeah. or, or somewhere right around there. Right. And he had it at this, you know, two hours and, and uh, 22 minutes, and he tried cutting it down, and he got it pretty close to it, um, but it wasn't close enough. And so, basically, uh, Scheinberg wanted to take over the rights uh, to do the edit himself or, you know, have Universal, have their team do the do the edit. And Gilliam fought them on this because Gilliam was work, he was trying to work with them to cut it down. He got it to 133 minutes. Um, so it was closer, but Scheinberg really felt the ending needed to change. And he felt that that moment when he and Jill are happy in bed, he's like, why don't we just end it there? And, and Terry, of course, you know, I mean, he is, a uh, 
a fighter anyway. And he's the sort of person I, I, I think he he says, uh, you know, I don't mind if I fail on my own terms. I don't want to fail on other people's terms. Right. And so he he felt that the ending was right. And at least as far as for him and he was he was fine if it had to if it if it didn't end up working as long as it was the way that he had put it together but he had put so much of himself into this film he didn't want anyone else to come come along he didn't want to make the Sid Scheinberg version of this film and so it just resulted in this fight where they didn't release it I mean it took them I think a year to get it released um, and I mean Terry Gilliam had to he put a, a full page ad out in Variety and all it said in the middle of this giant blank page was Dear Sid when are you going to release my movie Terry Gilliam <laughs> and just really trying to push him and and so and, and in the meantime the international version this longer cut had been playing and actually the international version is still slightly different than the version that that the director's cut is now um, I'd actually love to see the international version because I, I I know I saw it once a long time ago but honestly I can't quite remember what even how it differed um, and Sid was, uh, you know, finally, after all this, reluctantly agreed to release this 133-minute version. Um, and then Terry, he started going around, and I think he started at, at, at Cal Arts, where he did a screening there. And kind of, or you no, know, he went to do a talk there and talk about kind of, you know, being a director and all that. And he was go he was allowed to show clips of the movie and what he said is i'm going to show you a clip of brazil that happens to be the full length of the film and so he <laughs> showed them the film and people started it started creating this buzz and people started hearing about it and then they did a screening for the uh la film critics uh and again these were all not sanctioned by universal and the next thing you know the la film critics uh, voted it at the at their end of the year the best director best picture and best screenplay um, of of that year of 1985, and it started kind of building this buzz about this film, and so finally, uh, you know, they, Sid got this the film released at the end of December, and it did pretty well for itself, but it didn't do as well as it maybe could have, or maybe it did better than uh, than it would have if it had just been kind of dumped and hadn't gone through this fight. It could have been one of those films that had no marketing behind it, only a few people saw it, and it ended up just doing really poorly at the box office. It's one of those interesting things that we'll never know, but maybe because this whole fight happened, and really because Terry Gilliam turned it into this very public battle using these letters like that. I mean, he went on the talk shows to talk about it. He even had Robert De Niro come out onto talk shows to talk about it. And Robert De Niro notoriously doesn't go do all the, the PR for his films and stuff like that. All of that is stuff that uh, helped kind of fuel this fire and spark people's interest in the movie. It still didn't make money at the box office, but it did better than it probably would have. And now I think people have kind of realized that there's a, a real gem here. You know, Criterion finally released uh, the, I think in 96, they released the director's cut on Laserdisc then finally on DVD and now on Blu-ray. And so it's it's been a, quite a journey to get it out there. Um, but, you know, it, it happened, and lucky for us that it did. You know, I, I would add a, a, a pleasant aside. The, the book, The Battle of Brazil, was released in 1987 by Jack Matthews, and uh, it's it's a funny sort of ironic twist. Have you read the book? I have. Uh, I've read parts of it, and yeah. it has the annotated screenplay in there, yes. too. 
Yeah. There is a funny introduction in this current edition uh, where he talks about what it took to get the book published. And, you know, because he's a film critic and, and you know, has written some other stuff. But, he, he you know, he was originally approached and said, I, I, there's no book here. I mean, it's f- good to report on. It's a great story and we're following it. But then, you know, Buzz built and, and he ends up, uh, you know, he farms it out to some publishers and they end up saying, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll look at this as a book. And he writes the book. But the book is too long. And so he ends up having to cut a whole bunch of the book. They won't put the script, in, the screenplay in it. They won't do any of these <laughs> things in the original release. And so in the current edition, he's got a new publisher and he's gone back and added all the stuff that he wanted in the first place. He's, the introduction tells this story of how the book, The Battle of Brazil, directly parallels his experience, the, or the experience of Terry Gilliam in making the film. Uh, that is so it, funny. It is really funny. And it's, it's wonderful. The screen annotated screenplay is wonderful. They've got great storyboards in there. In particular, uh, a, a particularly kind of arresting um, uh, creative twist, uh, making the film Brazil, you know, the, the film Brazil ends up, I guess it was like a, it was an early working title, uh, you know, Brazil. Um, but, you know, nobody uh, at the studio really liked the title. And so they made them go through the process of coming up with a whole bunch of other titles that most of which were made up in jest, clearly. Well, Jack uh, Matthews has gone through and named all of his chapters after the titles that were the the alternate titles that were supposed to supplant Brazil as titles in the film and they're 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 fantastic uh the this escalator doesn't stop at your station if osmosis who are you i don't really get that one (laughs) you show me your dream skylight city disconnected parties can't anyone here play the symbols? <laughs> Sign on high. Arresting developments. Blank, blank. Blank slash blank. Right. right. Am I right? You got to get the slash in there, right? Exact. Stroke. I'm sorry. Stroke. Stroke, yeah. Stroke blank. Uh, chaos. Explanada. Fortunada is not my real name. Uh, the right <laughs> to bear arms. Uh, someday soon. Forces of darkness. New yak. New yak. And other bestial places, right? Am I right? Yeah, 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 uh, Lord of the Files, Fold, Spindle, Mutilate, The Smoking Moviola, and The Ball-Bearing <laughs> Effect. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry. It's The Ball-Bearing Electro-Memory Circuit Buster. So all of those could have been the movie that we're talking about tonight. I, for one, am glad it ended up being Brazil. Which what? is a great title, and, and you know his his initial titles for the film. It was actually going to be called the Ministry yeah. uh, when he first came up with it, and then it was the Ministry of Torture, or Brazil, or How I Learned to Live with the System so far. And so he had all these different ideas for the title. Clearly, and I, I love that the the title of the song, or the title is of the song by Ari Barroso, um, that you know, uh, uh, Bacchianos do Brazil. That then was created uh you know they created as i think michael Kamen called it that old bar mitzvah tune <laughs> that uh, that uh is is awfully fun i mean it is kind of this silly song um but if you listen to the lyrics it does uh, it's all about this you know kind of this uh dream place that you can get away to and it really fits the the film even though it's kind of a a, in a weird way kind of a nonsensical title my favorite is michael palin's quote about it he says it's a movie so good they named a country after it (laughs) so uh, but yeah it's 
What's but your sense of why uh, of why the title works? I have theories, but it, well, because it creates this. I mean, it it works uh, if you know the song. I think it works a little better because you can kind of picture it with the lyrics and everything. But at the same time, even if you don't know the song. It creates this place where you can get away to, and you, you know, you always hear, uh, you know, I don't know, criminals in movies, whatever. When they're then they got to flee the country, or oh, we're going to make off for Brazil or make off for Rio. You know, it, it's it's like this this paradise that you can get away to, uh, that uh, is, you you know, you're outside of the system now. You're away from the uh, the the all of the the connections to where you were before, and. Uh, it, it's it's very and it's beautiful it's just, it's a very freeing place it's different it's you know it's it's kind of this picture that you can have in your mind that is not where you are right now it yeah, absolutely i would i would add to that just as a twist not only is it a place that's not where you are right now it's a place that is untouchable that yeah. they can't get you and right. because so much of this film is um you know is is all about you know being reached wherever you are that symbol is somehow so much more, you know, reticent. It, it, there is an interesting twist I, I did not know uh, that uh, Brazil, B-R-A-S-I-L, mm-hmm. is. did you know about the Irish myth of Brazil? No, but I know... Uh, well, tell me. Well, it's that uh, it's about the island, right? This 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 mythological island uh, in um, uh, Irish mythology that is always uh, like shrouded in in mist. It's only visible uh, for a single day every uh, seven years, uh, and even on that day, it's unreachable. It's that place you can never reach. Yeah. Well, it fits. There you go. It definitely fits. I like it. Yeah. And you know, I love the 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 quote on the poster, the little tagline: "Brazil, it's a state of mind." It it all yeah. of that kind of fits into that, you know. Right, right. Yeah, mythical. Um, okay, let's talk. Uh, shall we talk a little bit about the people? Um, before we do, I just want to also throw in this whole idea of terrorists and terrorism. Oh, and yeah. Okay. This I, I I find this so interesting, and such an interesting part of the film. Um, and I think it can be read in so many different ways. Um, are there really terrorists or is it just that this system is so, uh, you know, so broken and, uh, um, buried in its own bureaucracy that it's, things aren't getting repaired. And so they're constantly breaking down, causing all these random explosions to be going off. Are they, uh, have they kind of put so many different people in so many different departments, departments trying to handle things that they are actually, uh, in a way kind of sabotaging each other and that's what's causing all of this stuff or are there really you know these kind of uh good guy terrorists out there like uh harry tuttle trying to fix the system uh but in the process causing these problems that are leading to these explosions i i think it's interesting that you could look at it potentially in many different ways i've always kind of looked at it like there's no there aren't any terrorists that this system i mean you have people like uh, Spoor and Dowser, these these horrible evil repairmen, who are just uh, you know just really uh, all about making uh, more work for themselves to keep themselves busy, really, and that... are the only characters that actively terrorize anybody. Exactly right. They are the the biggest terrorists in the film, and 
in my way of thinking, that that is the the terrorism is in the film, and and now this system has created this belief that these terrorists are out there, even though they really aren't. But it's one of those kind of scare tactics to get people to you know call them, only call us. And what, we'll let me get just it fixed let me just you. ask you though. Then, what's your sense of the? Uh, and again, I have a theory, but what's your sense of the explosion in the TV shop in the very beginning? All of the different explosions that happen in the film, it's just always different explosions that go off, I think, because things are broken and there's yeah. a clogged clogged duct somewhere that just finally just pops and, and it just causes this great big explosion. That's always been my take on it. Terrorism, I think, in the film, like, you know, and, and we get a, a, a little bit more of a, an exacting view of, of I, I think Gilliam's take on it when looking at the uh, the box, you know, the package that Jill has to to take, uh, has to carry, and he, he, you know, Sam's character is just fixated, thinking that it's, uh, uh, you know, that it's a bomb, mm-hmm. uh, and as it turns out, you know, after the bomb goes off or the ex- actual explosion goes off when he's in the the uh, shop, uh, it turns out it's just executive gifts. Uh, that she's tr- making a delivery, uh, and it, that the bomb itself was the the MacGuffin. Um, th- there was um, I read I think it was in the part of the annotated screenplay in uh, the Battle for Brazil that said you know the one thing that that Gilliam wanted to do that would make it better was to actually fill the uh, the box not with. Um, not with executive gifts, but with a, it was an actual box of red herring. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, which, which I think kind of celebrates the the entire point of terrorism being just a system that is eating itself, um, and and how prescient could much more prescient could this possibly be? Here we live in an era where all of our uh, our work to fight terrorism is under one government agency, Homeland Security. It it it's as if uh, you know they read the screenplay. As if they read the screenplay and took it as like a, a, a document yes. that they should follow. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Because obviously, more people under the same roof makes for less complication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and so here we are. Fa- right. It's a fascinating um, comparison. I, this is another one like Time Bandits that I think holds up even better now that we have the benefit of time. Uh, behind it. I do want to ask you this, because you made a comment last week when I was talking about technology versus and good versus evil, and the way that message holds up in Time Bandits. What's your sense of the way that message holds up in Brazil, um, in terms of the the statement that they're making about technology? My stance is this isn't a movie about technology. No, I don't think it is. I mean, technology is very interesting in this film. I love the way that all the technology is designed because it's clearly, uh, you know, not just form follows function, but form is following function really far behind. Like it's, right. It's, oh my it's, gosh, it's, that's created, brilliant. Yeah, they've created you know this this functional stuff that is just so. Uh, it's just like ugly, like the, these, the way that they've designed his little, the, all their viewing screens, you know, they've got these old rickety keyboards where essentially they like just took the shell off of them. So it's, it's just this ugly shell of a thing with this little thing sticking up with this little tiny, probably what, like a two inch TV on the back of it, a black and white screen with this great big magnifying screen in front of it that helps them like see it bigger. I mean, it's, it's, it's so silly, but it's, you know, they've, they've found these ways to kind of make things that work and it, but none of them really do. And, 
like you said, I don't think the film is about the technology. I think the technology is very interesting, but what I think it's all about is the bureaucracy and how this technology ended up getting designed the way it is because the it was it was trying to bureaucracy was trying to fit it into this mold that it needed to, it to fit into. Absolutely. It, it exaggerates, the technology exaggerates the ridiculousness of the world. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it was funny. Where, where did I see this? There was a great uh, quote from uh, Gilliam talking about uh, technology in, in, you know, the making of his movies. And, and, and in particular, this was about um, uh, an interview on the Zero Theorem. And, and, you know, he is like so many, you know, I think older um, purist directors in Hollywood are saying, you know, technology disconnects us, it disconnects people rather than brings them together. And then he says, technology uh, is very convenient. On the other hand, it's wonderful. I've got an iPhone, thanks to the film. We had some Apple products, and I got one for free. Uh, but what was most interesting in production, I changed some of the dialogue. I could take one little scene, make a little QuickTime movie of it, email it to Christoph Waltz in Berlin with the new line so that he could hear his original performance record the new line on his iphone email it back and that line recorded on Waltz's iphone is in the film wow uh right so you know here we have a guy who's you know been celebrating kind of the madness of techno bureaucracy for so many years and and is wielding it today quite expertly yeah and i don't know if that's something that you know as you get older you kind of you know, adapt to the system that you're in, or if, you know, like anything, there's always a good and a bad side to it. Yeah. Uh, who, how do you want to, uh, who do you want to talk about first? Well, uh, Terry Gilliam, we've, uh, obviously been talking about, I think, uh, you know, I think he's taken a great step from time bandits to this. And I think, uh, I, I'm glad that he had Time Bandits to use to get the money in order to do this, um, because you know I, I think right out of the gate, well, I mean he had Jabberwocky before Time Bandits, but it, that was a pretty small. He was still kind of trapped into kind of the 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 Monty Python world. I think now after Time Bandits, but now he's really firmly stepped out of that that uh, Monty Python mold and has really found himself as a director. And like I said, I mean, this is my favorite film of his, but even if it wasn't, I still would probably say this is his, uh, his best work. I, I think of all the films that he's done, he's created a, just a really solid uh, world and told a very unique story. Um, and I think with the help of Tom Stoppard, Charles McEwen, and what was the other guy's name that uh, helped him write the script initially? His buddy who helped him write Jabberwocky. Um, I'm blanking on his name right uh, now. I don't know. It's uh, on one of my pages somewhere. Anyway, um, his friend who helped him write Jabberwocky um, initially helped him start this and then unfortunately uh, passed away, I believe. And then uh, and then Tom Stoppard came in to, to write a few drafts and then, uh, and then Charles McEwen. I think all of them together found a lot of elements in uh, in this world that created just this brilliant script. And, I mean, I don't think we've talked about uh, Tom Stoppard on, on the show with anything before. We have not. Um, but he's definitely uh, an interesting writer. He, uh, I mean, he's a playwright and uh, has done some uh, some pretty big films that people have probably heard of, and a lot of TV, actually. 
Um, but he did uh, Shakespeare in Love, which I think is a, a brilliant script. He did um, the adaptation for The Russia House, which is an interesting film, and Empire of the Sun, which I have always loved as one of Spielberg's best. Was it Charles Alverson? Yes. Thank you. So, and then Charles McEwen, um, you know, he's known uh, Terry since the uh, since the uh, Monty Python days. He was in some of the Monty Python movies, and always has been great. And he's got such a great look. He does he does lime just brilliantly in this film as a person, another person who is just buried in this system and yes. is <laughs> totally totally good with it uh and actually we didn't mention but he was in time bandits as well he played the uh he played the theater manager that uh was going to kill himself uh, <laughs> because right. his shows were going so poorly for uh napoleon oh he does play these roles so well yeah oh he's so impossibly british he is he really is wow brilliant Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, okay, Charles McEwen, uh, and uh, let's do uh, let's do old Jonathan Price. Good old Jonathan Price. He's uh, boy. He's he's one of those guys who's just all over the place, isn't he? He really is. He's you know, it's funny to watch him in this film um, because I feel like I I just don't know him uh, as this kid anymore. Right? Yeah, uh, right, as as this bumbling kid, this sort of young, energetic, you know what he remi- who he reminded me of, hmm. uh, a friend of the show, uh, Chad Stoops. Oh yeah, if yeah. Chad was British, he could have nailed this part. Absolutely. Um, you know, but what we have in uh, in him today, right? I mean, he's been in a ton of films, but you know, he's he's a kind of goofy president in GI Joe. Right, uh, right. Um, you know, he's, Par- he's Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates I mean, of the Caribbean, right? Yeah, he's, he it's ends a up kind of strange, these... yeah. um, strange uh, kind of hodgepodge of roles. Uh, none of them, I, I think, uh, played with quite the innocence that he comes uh, to with uh, in Brazil. No, uh, yeah, he's just wide-eyed and wonderful in this film, and it's just it's really neat to see him like that. Yeah, it's fantastic. This was a few years after um, I remembered him in uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is yes. a, much more, a much more terrifying uh, role for him, uh, especially as a uh, young kid watching the film. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, he, I think he just brings so much of this, this. He has kind of this nervous energy through the film. You know, like he's, he's it's not like he's afraid to kind of do things wrong within the system, but there's just something the way that he kind of portrays it where he just, he almost just always seems slightly panicky. Yeah. And I really enjoy that uh, all through the film, the way that he, he brings this performance to life. And I mean, I don't think that this film would be as strong without him. I mean, and if you look at the list of other people that um, had potentially been in the role i mean it's it's a very interesting list i mean the most interesting of which i think is the fact that uh tom cruise was on the list and seeing Uh. this film because initially they were looking for a younger 20 something person to fill the role that's what gilliam thought he needed and um and so they were cat they were doing auditions with just all sorts of these these younger uh, Hollywood actors who were big at the time. Tom Cruise um, actually, I think, really wanted to do the film. What was the story with him? Um, he wouldn't, his agents wouldn't uh, let him do a screen test. 
because he was already of a stature, I guess, because of risky business where um, he they would just they had basically had to call him and say, We're, we want to hire you that he wouldn't do screen tests. And so because of that, they oh, couldn't consider him for the film. But um, Peter Scolari was on the list. Um, Aiden Quinn, uh, you know, the, uh, Rupert Everett, you know, people who yeah. I just honestly can't see in this film. I mean, this film is all about that character and and uh, Jonathan Price just is, is the role. Interesting twist, knowing that Tom Cruise is on the list. The fact that Kim Grease as uh, as Jill Layton uh, could have been played by either Rebecca De Mornay or Kelly McGillis, mm-hmm. uh, opposite Tom Cruise. I know that would have been a very interesting little uh, yeah. reunion. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, I yeah. think Ellen Barkin almost had it too for a while. Oh, Ellen Barkin, Jamie Lee Curtis, Ray Don Chong, uh, Rosanna Arquette. Madonna. Interesting. Wow. Madonna. Yeah, that they went down a lot of <laughs> a lot of roads that I'm glad didn't work out. Uh, I, I, yeah. I think Kim does a do, does a good job in the film, and I, I enjoy her in the role. I do too. I, she takes a little bit of getting used to for me. Yeah, um, she's a, she's well, she's her character is rough around the edges, and she's she's hard to get close to. And I, uh, as a character, and just as an audience member. I find her that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, that's, I think uh, definitely more the way I, I find her, you know, and, and I, you know, I haven't seen much from her, um, much other stuff from her, you know, she was in Manhunter, uh, which was right after that, which was, you know, the first take on Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, uh, Hannibal Lecter series. Um, but, but I don't, I don't have much of a memory of her. Uh, I certainly don't remember her in Throw Mama from the Train. Uh, oh, but, come on. Uh, yeah. You right. kidding me? Am I no, right? I, I'm serious. I love that movie. Manhunter, Throw Mama from the Train, Punchline. Re- I, really? You're going you're gonna to hang your head on that one? Throw Mama from the Train? Really? Have you seen it? I, it's hilarious. Okay, maybe it's maybe it's time for another Guilty Pleasure Add that series. to your list, son. Add it to your I list. I'll take love that, that bet. Movie. <laughs> oh, oh. It is so funny. Oh, man. <laughs> It is so funny. Owen! Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Um, I just, it's out there now. Oh, come on. Um, Ann Ramsey. Ann Ramsey makes that film. Kate Mulgrew. <laughs> just saying. Uh, okay, enough about that. So, yeah, she was fine. This was, it was an interesting aside to, to, to note that uh, Gilliam himself was not all that thrilled with with her stuff and and some of her stuff ended up getting cut just cuz he didn't like uh her performance. Yeah, I think he had a hard uh kind of a hard time working with her and uh, just found her um a little difficult and uh you know I think some of that was I think some of the way he was directing her cuz he was trying to really kind of push um, push her to be more closed off and stuff like that, and so would would do things to kind of uh, make her react in ways that uh, he wanted to see her react. And I don't think she liked that method of directing. So mm. you know, it was just one of those one of those things. But I mean, from my perspective, I think that she's fine in the film. But like we said, she does take a little getting used to. Yeah, who doesn't take getting used to? Robert De Niro. Yeah. I I remember seeing this. Uh, I actually did see this very early on. This is I think this was rated R uh, in theaters, right? Was it an R? 
I believe so. I think it was. And it, this was one of the first um, first R movies that I saw in the theater when it came out. And I was so excited about that. Um, that uh, and, and was, you know, I, I had already come to terms with who Robert De Niro was, but didn't know he was in the movie. And was so excited to go tell every adult that I knew, did you know Robert De Niro was in Brazil? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Such an idiot. That is so funny. Uh, but it was great to see him and Jonathan Price. Uh, you know, this was like the prequel to Ronan. In a way, it right? was. Right. Yeah, Them- right. Thematically, maybe not so much. <laughs> yeah, De Niro ended up in it because uh, he was uh, he had just done uh, The King of Comedy, and he had just done uh, Once Upon a Time in America, both of which were produced produced by Arnon Milchon, who was the, uh, the producer of this film. And so Arnon... Uh, thought that he would be good in the film and introduced him to Terry and uh originally his, slated history as, is made. Originally slated in the role as Jack Lint. Didn't mm-hmm. get that. And so he is Harry Tuttle. And he didn't get Jack Lint because the brilliant Michael Palin played mm-hmm. him. And if that man just doesn't bring great stuff to every role that he's in, man, he's so frightening in this and you know i i think a lot of that just stems from you know having his daughter in the room with him when he walks in after torturing somebody and his lab coat's just covered in blood and uh, but the way he plays that is just like the you know the you know dad at christmas time yeah that was really horrifying yeah um the, the way he plays it. it it was oh uh goodness Terrible. Uh, just, and that was, I think, a last-minute addition, the whole uh, idea that Jack and Sam would be having this conversation. And there is a surprise here that it's that that Holly, the daughter, Gilliam's youngest, um, right. was sitting in the room. Like, it, it's cut funny, right? There's no establishing shot that tells right. you that to the left there's a living room. Right. Um, and so it's, it's really jarring when you see her over there. But the way that scene ends... That he is starts out as this really swell guy, but he's a complete monster talking about you know his work torturing people. Uh, the way when he exits, the last line of this film is as priceless as any, uh, as uh, that that I think comes out of the humor, the British humor of the film. Holly, the the four year old, looks at Sam, and says, "Put it on, big boy. I won't look at your willy." <laughs> right that may be the darkest thing that this four-year-old is saying that to this adult <laughs> right. it's just right. wrong you'd never get that out of a child if no. it wasn't directed by her dad exactly and actually she refused to do it on set and so uh he uh terry had to basically get everybody off the set and he had to run the camera and his wife had to run audio and that was the only way that she would do it is if there were no people around. It's so good. <laughs> uh, acting with children, oh, as they say. Brilliant. Catherine Hellman is uh, fantastic as the constantly uh, getting more youthful Mrs. Lowry. Until uh, she doesn't. And <laughs> until she turns to jelly. That's not her. No, That's... in the in the in the dream in the... sequence at the, at her in her death. That's not her death. That's Mrs. Terrain's funeral. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, they, she they was the to... one that's been decomposing the right. whole time. That's right. 
yeah, Mrs. Terrain is the one who's going to the acid man. And so, you know, her complications keep getting complications and she keeps getting worse and worse. Whereas uh, Catherine Hellman gets younger and younger. And at at Mrs. Terrain's funeral, she now looks uh, as she looks exactly like Jill. Yeah. And so it's it kind of a, a well, creepy to the point where thing, it, and, and that is creepy because they ended up using Jill for two of the turns. Right. And then Catherine Hellman on the last one, who actually, you know, they 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 younged her right on up. Yes, they did. Uh, no, but she 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 works really well with Terry. She fits into his worlds really beautifully and just she latches onto it and she just does it and she does it perfectly. She is so good in every scene that she's in, whether it's when, uh, you know, the the very well uh, documented shot of her face getting stretched by her plastic surgeon played by Jim Broadbent, um, which I, that seems to be the photo that they use in every marketing uh, yeah. uh, thing they have for this film when, when her face is getting stretched um, or just wearing the shoe, that shoe hat on her head, whatever it is. She's, she's perfect. Truly. Um, we've got, and we got some little, uh, little parts, Ian Holm, Bob Hoskins. Ian Holm, we've already talked about great, yeah. uh, as Mr. Kurtzman, uh, brilliant, uh, and uh, Bob Hoskins as Spoor, one of the heating engineers, mm-hmm. uh, and oh my goodness, the the resentment that brews uh, between those two of them, uh, the two of them, uh, over this stinking form. Right. It's a wonderful it's twist. It's fantastic. Uh, yes. Um, Ian, Ian Richardson is the uh, the fantastic Mr. Warren who basically constantly is having meetings while he walks. Um, we've talked about him in Dark City. He was uh, fantastic in Dark City, and he's uh, he does this role brilliantly. He uh, I, it never stops talking, and I just I love the way that he plays the role. It's so much fun. And uh, finally, Peter Vaughn as the kind but impotent sort of um, uncle. Uh, st- the yes. the mother is having the crip- is the mistress leader. Oh. of the crippled leader Helpman, uh, mm-hmm. who is great. We don't see much of him. He's usually at a distance until until we get this wonderful sequence uh, where Sam he he pulls Sam close and says, "I need your help." And it turns out he just needs him to help him. He needs Sam to help him stand up to pee. Right, and uh, that is a it's a wonderful bathroom exchange. Yeah, that is that is pretty funny. I don't think that yeah. they're it's uh, his mistress though is his wife. I think his because uh, his father worked with Mister Helpman. I think they're just you know old friends. Wow, oh, I always I've always read that is that they're they are subversively in an affair. Well, maybe they are, but yeah. if so, then she certainly is still screwing around because she's all over the young men at the party. Right, right, right. Well, so there you have it. So there Add you have that it. to the stew of you thinking about this film. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, what, uh, who else? Uh, well, and just last, uh, Jack Purvis pops up as the acid man, the uh, the other doctor. And it's nice seeing him after Time Bandits pop up in something else. Oh, and, that was right. <laughs> That's yeah, right. right. That's right. You're gonna, what did he say? You're going to look like Ma or... Uh, 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 oh. Yeah, that funny exchange at the party. You keep doing things like that. You're going to... Oh, I see. Now I don't have the script in front of me. That's okay. Well, it was very funny. It was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Michael Kamen, I mentioned earlier, did the music for this. I think this is uh, Michael Kamen's best work. Uh, The fact that he took the song Brazil, that, as he says, that old bar mitzvah tune, 
and adapted it into the score and created this like living uh almost a musical feel to the film with there's just i mean it's so lush with music uh both bluesy uh adventurous uh romantic he creates all these moods all through the film um and and it works so well and you've get that you it it taps into that dream state and it really is kind of like the dream mentality of sam outside of his dreams and uh, i mean this music i think is just is spot on perfect for the film I, I agree, and I usually I'm I'm sort of torn on Michael Kamen. You know, I I think I was, yeah, I I got jaded at at Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Uh, <laughs> well, I don't blame that on him. I blame that on Brian Adams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that is totally fair. Uh, but yeah, this is a, the the thing I thought about this when I saw his credit was, oh my goodness, isn't that a, a credit to his work? that I didn't know that this was a Michael Kamen score. Yeah. It is really very clever. I think you're right. Musically. Uh, he, yeah, he's, he's had uh, some ups and downs in his career for sure. Um, uh, he's not one of my favorite composers, but he does have some highlights. So, so, so I like him. Yes. Uh, and then last, uh, the last people I really wanted to talk about, we've, we've talked about before, but Norman Garwood, the production design, and uh, James Acheson, the costume design, in this film, I uh, I mean, really, like we said with Time Bandits, Terry Gilliam creates these worlds that are dense and lush and uh, just overflowing with details. And it takes these pros like James Atchison and Norman Garwood to really tap into all of that and bring these worlds to life for him. And, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, they just do amazing, amazing work in this film. I mean, it is beautiful. Everything about it, I mean, it's it's kind of horrifying. Everything in here is really kind of of a, a dark beauty, but it's just just stunningly gorgeous. I, I love looking at this film. It's just lush. It's detailed. And, uh, you know, I give a, a, a lot of credit to Terry Gilliam for coming up with this world, but really these are the people who really brought it to life. I know you agree with me when, uh, in terms of Garwood's work. I mean, I, I think he's. This was easily as good as his work in in Hook, wouldn't you say? <laughs> no. Well, well. See, Hook, okay, I bring Hook, that. That's a that's a chestnut Hook, right there. Hook did look pretty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's always uh, fun. Yeah, cut, maybe go with the Princess Bride instead. I was going to go Cutthroat Island, start. but then I saw Hook and uh, I couldn't do it. You just had to go yeah. there, didn't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, totally agree. Uh, and then, and then the effects guys. I think the you know they had a a very solid uh, team of effects people who worked on this film. Um, George Gibbs, I think, had worked on the Raiders, Raiders, and Temple of Doom. Who, and he actually said that this film was harder than Raiders. I, I think probably because the budget was smaller, and uh, you know, and Terry was a, a, a very different type of director, but. Um, I think he did a fantastic job with it. And then I'm blanking on the other effects guys. Richard Conway, he had been an effects guy who'd worked with him on Python. You know, all of the miniatures, that's what's great about a film like this is you get all these fantastic miniatures and models and uh, very little blue screen. There's, I think, only a couple blue screen shots. Uh, most of all of the uh, the flying sequences are all puppets or like miniatures. And I think they did an amazing job. And um, yeah, kudos to them, all the visual effects and special effects that they did here. Well, and, you know, you get these wonderful, like, kind of talk about taking another lap moments when the when the um, the Ian Holm brick 
monster comes out of the sidewalk and and grabs the uh, the dream Sam's ankles. You know, there's a wonderful little moment as he as he knocks the the mask off the samurai and sees his own face. Like there's these great little integrations of practical effects, and and uh, I just think they they're just a real highlight to the film to the look yeah. of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. Is that it? Is that it? Is that what you got? Um, you know, and then I just just pointing out some of his influences. I mentioned that the, the kind of the Hitchcock vertigo uh, moment. I mean, so much so the point where um, when they get onto the bed and everything. I mean, it's straight out of Vertigo, and you just saw Vertigo recently yeah. on your vacation, right? You're right. It's it's that you've got that flashing neon light outside of the window, and it's this it's the uh, the Vertigo moment where uh, where uh, James Stewart transforms. Uh, the girl I'm blanking on her name um, to look like the, his dream girl, really. And you've got that neon light outside of the window, just flashing as the camera kind of spins around them. And he really kind of plays with that. And as, as he, as Sam um, comes in and finds Jill there, you've got this flashing red light outside the window, this neon light that is blinking. And it very much is a vertigo moment. Um, he, he has the great uh, paths of glory reference uh, from Kubrick's paths of glory with the whole, uh, he wanted to kind of have his own, um, you know, marching through the trenches sort of thing. And you've got those, those fantastic uh, tracking shots where the camera pulls back and you go all the way down this incredibly you know, long corridor and then around a corner and then all the way down another long corridor all the way up to Kurtzman. He's fantastic. And just all the bustling of the people going around. It's a, a fantastic nod to Paths of Glory. Um, a little nod to the third man with uh, uh, Lime, with uh, Charles McEwen's character's name. And then, of course, the infamous uh, Battleship Potemkin uh, bit that I don't think was in the... Was it in the American version? The bit at the uh, when he and uh, 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 Tuttle are escaping, and they run through the lobby where all the cleaners are, and all of the troops come storming in, and the, the one of the janitors gets shot in the eye, just like... Potemkin, and then the the janitor's uh, giant floor vac falls down the steps just like the baby carriage. And um, it was, uh, I mean, it's straight out of Battleship Potemkin. It's a fantastic yeah. little nod to it. But I can't remember if it was in that version. It's definitely yeah. not in the American, or in the, in the Love Conquers All version. It, it is in the American version. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. yeah, I just, you know, fun little things that he's throwing in here that I think are... are uh, great little nods to other films whether he's trying to say something or he's just being fun and creative i think they're all fun to note yeah totally uh and to to watch you know uh brazil after the fact to see the impact that brazil has had on other directors since yeah absolutely uh, flavor is everywhere yep um what say you ready to talk about some numbers i am i just wanted to mention one last thing and okay. you know i i can't find a link for this if if anyone knows where you can find a link definitely send it over but there was a group that uh you know how these movie theaters would do like screenings of greece where you could go is the sing-along version yeah, you could like go sing and, yeah rocky horror version right somebody out there did a, a a live performance version of brazil and it was done on this um one of these kind of a, a buildings where it's got kind of a central uh uh, kind of just a, a green area to sit in and it, uh, that opens up. So it's kind of like a big square-shaped building with a big opening in the middle. And they did the performance in there, and they actually had uh, the Sam Lowry character. Like, So the movie was playing on the wall, 
and then they actually had actors kind of acting it out and sam lowry character was on wires and when he was flying he would like go up they'd pull him up into the air and he'd be flying around in the interior of this big space in there and i i know that i had seen a link to this uh years ago and i was fascinated by it and i was like crossing my fingers that one day it would come play somewhere near me although i've never I never have heard anything of it since, so clearly it hasn't quite become as popular as some of these other sing-alongs. Because you but, would take uh, your own set of wings that I know you have in your closet. <laughs> I would. Right next to your laser disc of this movie. You bet, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'd be that guy. Fantastic. Yep. So anyway, that's yeah. uh, that's a fun little bit that uh, that they have done. Uh, I wish I had a link that we could post, but uh, if anyone else knows of it, just uh, send it on over. Absolutely. You already mentioned that this film did not uh, did not make its box office nut. It didn't. This is a film. Um, like I said, they sold it at uh, Con to uh, to Universal and Fox for a combined total of fifteen million dollars. That was the budget they went in with. Um, they ended up making uh, domestically. I could only find the domestic numbers. It obviously did well uh, in Europe. So potentially that would push these numbers up higher, and maybe it it came closer to breaking even. But domestically, it only made nine point nine million dollars. So looking at just that, it ended up losing at the box office. Um, adjusted to today's dollars, it ended up losing seventy seven, almost seventy seven point five thousand per finished minute. So, um, but like I said, we're not taking the international into account there. So maybe it did a little better. All right, I have to imagine. Yeah, that and, you it know, broke fifteen million dollars. I'd like to think so, and it, it's one of those films that has kind of become a cult. I don't know if I'd even call it a cult classic, but it's. I think a lot of critics who didn't rate it as favorably have gone back and have readjusted their thoughts on it, and uh, you know, have are thinking more highly of it now. Uh, it it keeps popping up on all these lists now. Uh, you know. Total Film named it the 20th greatest, greatest British movie of all time. Uh, time reviewers named it in as one of the 100 best films of all time. All these, all these different people keep putting it in one of the, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. And it's, it has found kind of this, this other life for itself um, later in its life as people have, I maybe have learned to appreciate it. Um, maybe as the director's cut has, has finally been able to be released. Um, but it certainly is something that has grown in, in, uh, uh, stature. And, uh, I'd like to think that that has meant that maybe it has finally broken even. I, I would note that you and, uh, the Ebert diverge, we do. I know. Here. He, he was not uh, not a big fan of this one. He only gave it two out of four stars. I mean, he had a problem with the ducts. He had a problem with kind of just this this character. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I just don't think that he ever clicked with this film, unfortunately. Hard to follow. Seen it twice, and I'm still not sure who the characters are or how they fit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, so there he are comes times. to your He comes to your, say, uh, to your side. For knowing. I know. And he totally lets you down here. What does that say? (laughs) I don't know. I say we flick chart it. All right, man. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can uh, can catch up with all the movies. You can see our stacked ranking list of all of our favorite films and see see if ours match yours. Let's do it. All right. Brazil or knowing. 
<laughs> wow. Oh. Well, you know, uh, I mean, I'm going to go with Brazil. I know what you're going to go with here. Yep. All right. Brazil or an American werewolf in London? Brazil. You know where I'm going to be going on all of these. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Yeah, and so, we'll... Like I said last week, this is largely going to be, <laughs> I, I, it's going to hit a point where where I'm going to have to let you take the reins and just kind of pick if, because uh, otherwise. I, I actually am not sure if I should trust your finger to click. <laughs> like you may just oh. not even know it. How did that end oh, up in number get... one? Oh, well. <laughs> all right. Brazil or Moneyball. <laughs> it's not that early yet, is it? Oh. You know how I feel about Moneyball, though. I, really I, know. I know. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give Brazil as this one. All right. Brazil or Time Bandits? Oh, there you go. Oh, I, Brazil. Excellent. Brazil or Inception? Inception. <sighs> All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm going to give you that one. Brazil or Raiders of the Lost Ark? Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. I actually am surprised that that's not hard for you. It's not. It really isn't. Because I mean, it should be Raiders. <laughs> I'm sure you did I, not understand my question. <laughs> I, I'm i going to give you Raiders, if only because Raiders is so easy to watch. Yes. Brazil is a, it, it can be a very, like I said, this is a dense film. It is a dark, uh, dirty film. This is a film my, wi- my wife will not watch with me. <laughs> Her friends, uh, one, of our, one of our kind of group of friends, uh, there's one of them who tried showing them uh, as a group this film. This was before I came into her life so he tried showing them this film they all hated it so he and i are the only two in our whole group who actually really love this film and we can't you know we 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 can't even bring it up because it just turns into this big joke with all of them as to how much they hate it so it's just one of those films it really you know my wife has a hard time with terry gilliam period because of the griminess of his films and and everything about the way that he does the costumes everything it just feels so uh, kind of a kind of a kind of slightly decaying organic feel. She really just has a hard time with it. I you know I I can see I can absolutely see that. I think the the you know if you take the time to sit down and really think about what the film uh, is saying to you uh, or or what you're able to read from it, I think it's you know after a discussion like this, I think it's more it makes it more fun to watch if you just look at it like Ebert did. Oh my God, there are so many ducks. Uh, I, I don't think you get the point, but I clearly, I hope that it comes. I also, I deeply love this film. Uh, and I think it, it deserves wherever it landed. Where did it land? Number two, three. Well, no, well, you said Raiders, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brazil or all the president's men. Oh, all the president's men. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Number nine. All right. So it pushed, uh, time bands to 10. It did. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay with that because I know it's number one on my list. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate you allowing me to uh, balance that out there. Yes, yes. I'll be your I'll be Jill to your Sam. (laughs) Thank you. Very yin yang on this. Yeah. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, Excellent. Well, I feel good about that. Where do we go from here? 
We're going to, uh, uh, well, we're going to be continuing our Terry Gilliam series. We're going to be rounding out his uh, his little trilogy of uh, you know, dreams here. We're going to go to The Adventures of Baron Munchausen next week. Which is my favorite film of all time. <laughs> I, couldn't even, I, I, I could not even not laugh at that. Uh, no, it's going to be good. I'm curious to rewatch this one. Me I haven't too. seen this in a while, and I've I've always kind of had a, a middling feeling about it. So I'm curious to see how I feel. Now. I I will tell you, I'm not going to watch it alone. I'm going to watch it with my kids, and make them watch it, and just <laughs> see if watching it with them uh, gives me any greater enthusiasm for it. Well, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll we'll, uh, try seeing if Olivia wants to jump yeah. in. I'm one. shooting for groupthink. That's what I'm. I'm <laughs> aspiring to groupthink over Munchausen. Uh, yes. Awesome. Hey, uh, good talk. I'm glad we got this one under our belts. Yes, I. Uh, you know, I'm thrilled to have had a chance to talk about it on the show, and uh, uh, yeah, look forward to talking to talking more Gilliam. Right, hey, hey, uh, good talk, my friend. I got to go to bed. I got to go fill out a 27B stroke six. Subversive. Mm. Uh-huh. Ooh. Uh, it's a it's a one star review. Oh. Oh, just wait. By a customer. Mm. I put one star on this review to get the attention of people like myself who find most movies bad. I always look for the worst reviews. To me, though, Brazil is the best but damn it forget what i or anyone else says just like you have to forget idiotic rules about what the stars on a review mean decide for yourself i saw brazil first in 1986 or so i thought it was good but it was preaching to the choir i already knew how miserable modern life was it's the end of 2003 now and i just saw it again for the first time in 17 years and i'm shocked at how hilarious it is much funnier much more from the heart and the than the serious young man thought see it and if you're an old geek like me you'll love the set design the old equipment is aging really well as is the movie <laughs> you see what he did there he wrote a really nice review, but he gave it one star to trick people. Subversive. Right? That's right. What'd you get? Mine is by ACW Python, <laughs> who gave it five stars, but says, this should get a 15. This is one of the best movies in the world. <laughs> of course, you must be smart because it is kind of confusing. But it has Jonathan Price and Michael Palin, the coolest man ever. It also has a little something extra I can't describe. End. What? What's the what's the something extra? <laughs> I'm not quite we sure. We just spent like nearly two hours talking about this movie, and I don't know what the something extra is. I don't either. It's it's very very tricky. Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 